You're listening to Tech Talk Central. This is Vicky Colovo from Barcelona. I'm here with Helen Keegan and her friends at Casanosa. Once we did this last year and we're back again and we'll be talking about everything mobile. <laughs> this is a GSMA says that. So. Helen, um, I think you should do the first introduction. Uh, hello everyone and thank you for tuning in to our Tunes and Chat this morning. Uh, my name's Helen Keegan. I host the Swedish Beers Party, which is on Wednesday night, and I'm running a ladies' meetup on Monday afternoon as well, where we're having curry. It's going to be delicious. Um, probably cut that bit out. So today we're back. It's a year later. The sun is out. We're on the terrace at Casanossa, and Rafe, Illy, Troy, and Vicky's team are all here to talk about what's been happening in mobile since we met this time last year and a few things around uh, some hot topics that we think will be of interest this year. So I'm going to hand over to Troy so he can introduce himself. Good morning everyone, my name is Troy Norcross. I'm with SER Associates. Um, I started doing mobile back in 2000 working for OpenWave, uh, which started by phone.com and started actually creating the WAP protocol. So I've been doing mobile for, for quite a while, my 12th year here at Mobile World Congress. Uh, looking to meet with a number of mobile network operators on two or three different projects. Um, and I'll pass over to Rafe. Hi, I'm uh, Rafe Blanford. Uh, I'm a mobile strategist at DHS LBI, which is a big uh, technology marketing company. Um, but I also have a background in mobile going back sort of well, a long time. This is going to be my 11th Mobile World Congress and previously I used to write a lot about smartphones, still do that and do podcasts with uh, 361podcast.com. But here I'm hoping to find out all the latest trends, keep up with what's going on, but particularly some topics around uh, the latest hardware and software and how the experience of ex uh, software is starting to move outside of the app into the other surfaces on the phone. So everything from notifications to Google Now, uh, mobile wallet and that kind of thing and try to understand where that's going so we can talk to our clients and understand how you can make the most compelling mobile experiences with deep engagement. Mm -hmm. Hi and I'm Illico Elia um, and I'm head of mobile at Digitas LBI and it, weirdly I'm the baby I think because I've only been to Mobile Congress like in the last 10 years. So uh, I feel a little bit outdone by my fellow guests here today which is unusual for me really. Uh, um, I look after all of our clients at Digital LBI who have anything to do with mobile, which basically should mean everyone, because as we have been told many, many times, especially this year, everything's mobile. Everything's mobile. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so that sort of makes it hard for us to pick what topics, because a, these guys can cover a lot of things. But I want to start with advertising, and Helen, I think you know a lot about that. So compared to last year and what was promised that was going to happen during 2015 and going into 16, what did come true, or and where do you see the future of it going? Uh, well... Should we wait that stuff? No, no, we can cut it out, don't worry. Uh, as a consumer, nothing much has changed in terms of my experience in advertising mobile. Um, online or, or otherwise really and that is a frustra frustration uh, I see a rise in programmatic uh, advertising mm -hmm. I worry about that because of the data that flows around about us and that informs those choices and um, of the advertising and content that we see in our streams and I think there are some quite disturbing iterations of that so an example is um, 
I recently hosted event, an event talking about artificial intelligence and this topic came up about programmatic advertising because it's kind of machine learning that, that drives it and that it is uh, as, um, uh, what's the word, sexist as anything else out there. So there's case in point with um, recruitment advertising that women don't see senior level adverts because the algorithms... Uh, they work. So they just keep uh, uh, incrementing and increasing the prejudices that are already there and already exist. And then more disturbing, I think, it was another example I heard about where if you uh, have a certain type of name, so my name is Helen Keegan, it's a, it's a neutral Western middle class kind of name. So I would see a certain type of advert against that name. But if you don't have that kind of name, if you have um, a poor black American um, projects kind of name, then the type of adverts and content that you see uh, in your line of vision on Facebook and Google, whatever it might be, will be related to things like debt and credit unions and, you know, lower lower opportunities. So there'll be a poverty of ambition and a poverty of experience because you don't get to see the nice nicer stuff that I see as a as white middle class female. And that I find troubling because it's exacerbated by the data. So that's quite a good one for Lily to come in on. Can I can I ask a question on that? Is that is that purely because people like you click on things that you see and therefore that's right? Well, yes, it is right <clears throat> in that it's people like me are clicking on these things, so we see more of them because the advertising works, right? But then that is a poverty of ambition for people who aren't as privileged as I am or who don't have my background. They'll never see some of the opportunities that might come up, whether that is in um, jobs and opportunities, the different kind of credit or insurance, uh, the different just and the t kinds of content, the outbrain type stuff that you see in magazines and newspaper outlets online. Uh, they'll see a completely different kinds of article that they'll be led to, and that troubles me because that increases the divide rather than reduces the digital divide. And moving on that same point, about two years ago, they talked about the Google filter bubble. You know, so what you search for and what you click on kind of reinforces your own values, reinforces what you already know, and you get fed more and more of what you already know. So that programmatic, um, and one of the things we're talking about, and you mentioned it earlier, is artificial intelligence and AI being one of the things that's starting to come out. And more than just if-then-else clauses, which is current programmatic, when AI starts going into programmatic, that may change what you're seeing. Well, will it? Because whose responsibility is it to change and whose interest is it in to change it? Yeah, I think that's the really important point because uh, the equality angle here is that it's typically the people who program it dictate the parameters and that tends to be done by technologists who I think aren't always very open or aren't very understanding of the equality issues and we've had to in society if you look back I don't think it's anything particularly unique we've had the same problem before and there has been legislation for equality and equal pay um, and yet it's happening again in technology because it's held up as being something special and neutral but it's only ever going to be as good as it's programmed to be and as Helen suggests, that the biases are, are built into that. So I do wonder whether there might need to be legislation or how do you get a neutral arbiter? Um, and it does tend to be a kind of a vicious circle. It will get worse over time, not better. The more optimistic part of me hopes that um, 
the, the problem is at the moment with that kind of targeting that we're talking about is it's quite, um, it's quite high level. It, as it becomes more granular and heterogeneous, hopefully that will improve. But looking at the way algorithms operate, I'm not entirely confident that it will, and the familiarity principle definitely has a, a part to play here. Um, so it, it's an issue that I don't think we've heard enough about, um, and it's very easy to ignore because the people who can do something about it are the ones who aren't really impacted by it. And it's the same as any other equality issue, really, in that sense. Um, it sounds scary. Have you had any indication of possible legislation or somebody who can legislate noticing this? I think the challenge is, is who's responsible. Is it the CEO of Google or the ad network or whoever? Is it the responsibility of the government? And if it is, if it's a country for that country, where does the legislation then sit? If I'm in the UK and seeing something that's posted in the US, it's a very complicated thing. And part of it is a moral and ethical judgment of how far you want to be seen to be going down that road and I don't think enough people are having those conversations and because it's too easy to get distracted by the new shiny toys and new shiny systems and being sold to and, and whatever else uh, and my hope and one of the challenges I've set myself this year is to encourage and facilitate more of those conversations to, to see some decision making and to see some answers emerge. We should also be clear that you know regulation isn't always the right answer anyway, particularly in the technology space where it does tend to lag behind what's happening. It's very hard, and we've seen it with things like net neutrality and all the other big topics around security and privacy. The government hasn't been very good at putting the right frameworks in place, frankly, because it, it changes from year to year, or they don't have the expertise themselves. And so my, my hope would be it's something that the industry can address, but I suspect, just like anything else, it'll end up having to be a mass movement. Yeah, it's just it just sounds scary, and um, I think Troy, you need to say something on yeah, that. The, the only thing I'll say is, you know, from a, a pessimistic perspective and point of view, I think it's capitalism at the end of the day that, that really drives it. So more yeah. than regulation, more than than overall society movements, it's capitalism, and I think there's some really interesting experiments that actually break with the current thinking that proved that they were profitable, that they could actually make more profit by changing the way the algorithms work, would be a more effective way to, to introduce change at a small scale. But it's also control and power. Um, some want power. It doesn't always have to be about the money. But the way Helen paints it, it's like you can control the masses and decide who does what in life. In order to get money. Yeah. And that, <laughs> but, I think that's, know, the, I was... that's the big issue. Is that it's, I, I, I sort of almost agree with you in that the idea is this because it's capitalism but if you look at Outbrain and Taboola they start out with a very um, interesting idea of let's show stuff from around the web to people who are looking at stuff from around the web and try and make it as interesting and as relevant to you as possible and it ends up about being a popularist yeah. link and that's it. Okay. You can make the argument that actually it's just a reflection of people's behaviour and the decisions they make. Mm -hmm. And that's a rather negative way of looking at it. But the reality is a, a lot of those things are driven by uh, what people do, you know, own worst enemies in that. I think that's a really nasty way to look at it because I, I would hope we can be better than that. Um, but the lessons of history do suggest otherwise. And if, you give, and if you give someone the ability to do the easy thing, they just do the easy thing. Why yeah. Not? Okay, so Ili, since you have the microphone, you wanted us to mention video. Let's go something lighter, or I think it's lighter. So uh, talk a little bit about the future, where you see it going, what's happening with video? Well, we're seeing an enormous increase in the amount of video that's being watched. I, I do it all the time, at home, at the office. On the way to the office, it's a bit weird. I've actually hit a lamppost whilst watching a video on my phone. I can't believe I just said that. Um, 
The interesting thing for me about video is how we're measuring it and how we're measuring the impact of video. Uh, you know, the first adverts on TV was a radio presenter reading out a radio advert. The first video or the first adverts on mobile are not sort of suited to the mobile platform. Video on mobile wasn't suited to a mobile platform. And yet we're now seeing much more made for mobile type video, um, which is really interesting, really interesting to me. What I'm not sure about is, are we measuring the right things to understand the impact and the engagement and the effectiveness of that video? Do you need to measure effectiveness of a video? Um, what role is it playing in what we're doing these days, especially on the mobile platform? Well, how can you measure it? Because half the time I've got video running, it's auto running, and I've no idea that it's running on a page. Or I've switched it on and then I've got completely distracted because I've gone somewhere else. But equally with an ad, just because it's rendered on a screen on one of my devices, does it mean I've actually seen it? it, it you, I think you've seen it. Whether it's registered or not is, the, is, a, different, uh, is a different matter. This is a case, sorry to interrupt on this one, but um, because we do podcasts a lot, I want to hear people talking, but I don't really want to see them. And since there's not the option only of audio, I sort of theoretically watch a video, but I don't watch it. I just listen to it. So how would somebody have to measure that? In my opinion, they should separate whether it's the audio you're just listening or also watching the picture. But that's just my opinion. One of the other things that we're hearing a lot about in the ad industry is viewability. You know, so when the ad isn't viewable at all because it's below the fold, when you're doing video, and Venetia, you were talking about earlier, any small movement catches your attention. And once it's captured your attention, then you're actually focused on it, and then you may or may not engage with it. So this is an interesting evolution. And if you think back, what, eight years ago, 24, the, the TV program did one-minute episodes, so mm-hmm. one-minute episodes on, on Vodafone. So they've been trying to make snackable video for a while, but they're getting it now into an interesting format, suitable for mobile and then integrating it into places where we already are, which is in Snapchat, in Facebook, in Yak. Do we need snackable video? Because the stuff I see, you know, the rise of the super vloggers and what have you, that, that stuff isn't snackable video. It's suitable for any kind of screen, but it's quite long form. Yeah, so I think that we were initially looking towards short-form video, kind of snackable video, because our attention span was so short. Mm. And I think you're right. Certain kinds of content, higher-quality content, are indeed long-form. What, some of the vlogger stuff is higher-quality content? (laughs) (laughs) And And I think the honest answer depends on the demographic. So millennials are definitely tuned towards the shorter video. Basically, they've been trained by Snapchat and Instagram. I think the interesting thing about mobile is it's become a lot more prevalent in the last few years because we finally got to the point where the network supports it in terms of having 3G and 4G fairly ubiquitous in the Western markets. There's a reason that video takes up 80% of the most operator bandwidth now and you can look at Netflix for the kind of longer form stuff. But video means a lot of different things to different people. And the reason I think it's interesting in mobile is because it's the first of the media formats and arguably the first of the content formats that works well on mobile. We've talked about mobile advertising for the last 20 years, but most of it was just converted straight from the desktop in terms of banners and they don't work very well on mobile, no real surprise, or the interstitials. Um, Video has actually evolved as a format on mobile, at least I feel it has. Um, I still think there's a lot of work to do there, and I still don't think we've got the right mobile advertising formats um, to really hit home. But that's why video is interesting, why the consumption's gone up so much. But the concern I have with, as Ilico suggested, is the metrics that we're measuring aren't actually the ones that really, you know, they're just about... 
um, how many times it's being loaded. It's not really about the viewability that Troy was talking about or the engagement. And so I think advertisers are getting an optimistically false picture of how good mobile mm -hmm. video is. Um, and the obvious follow up to that is what is going to work. And I'm not sure, but I think actually thinking about more blended campaigns where you're using multiple formats, which we don't see that much of on mobile, the kind of the takeovers of the desktop. Um, and I'd like to see more of that. So it's operating across all the services that exist on a phone, not just in-app or um, in a search result. There's a lot more you can offer now with um, you know, all the potential things on mobile. Yeah, and I think the other the other side to this is um, we, we talk about the need to have snackable video on mobile. I, you know, people didn't believe that you would buy a Ferrari on mobile when it first yeah. had the ability to do that. You will watch a long movie if that's the way you want to watch a long movie on mobile. I have. You will watch a short one if the content is good enough. You will watch a long one if the content is good enough. It does come back to horribly or expensively how good is the content that you're trying to watch and does it answer the question in one minute, five minutes, ten minutes, an hour long. And that's where the sort of contextuality of mobile becomes important because it has a much better idea of what you're doing and therefore, in theory, at least the ability to make a decision about um, what form you want to consume it in and because it's the ultimate personal device and all the things we usually hear about mobile and so the potential is there it, it, it feels like a lot of the rest of it we're still waiting for maturity and uh, a lot of the easy stuff is, is being done and that kind of gives a bad reputation um, yeah. when it's done ineffectively um, uh, Would you say Facebook is doing video well? You know, it's autoplay and I wonder sometimes why they're showing me the stuff they're showing me I wonder, do you think they're doing a good job out of it? Do you have any ex personal opinion on that, Rafe? Uh, I think because Facebook has such a volume going through it, they're very good at sort of optimising. Um, did you press something? Can you check? It's on. Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, it's a good question. I, I think Facebook, just because of the sheer volume it's doing, is able to optimise within its own kind of uh, formats and space. Is it the best way of doing it? I don't it's know, working don't for them. Yet. It's working for them. They're making lots of money from yeah. it. And the autoplay, however irritating it might be, does actually work. Yeah. But I really like what they're doing with their 360 video. Yeah. You know, the, the evolution of video into a totally new format and totally new immersion is very interesting. And it's having really good uptake. And mm -hmm. once it becomes easier to produce more of those, I see more kind of truly immersive sort of videos. And that plays into the VR thing. Yeah, the, the fact they're willing to experiment is the best thing yeah. and they have such a huge platform they can learn very quickly what does and doesn't work so when you say you like what Facebook are doing with 360 videos why is that any different what what is different about what Facebook are doing to other people who are doing 360 video or is it just the fact that they they have created a product that allows people to easily deliver 360 videos yeah, it, it, it's not that Facebook is doing anything different with 360 video. It's much more that they're actually making it mainstream. They're putting it in front of more and more people and we're finding out, do people like it? Do they engage with it? And does it actually work? Um, to your question about what are we measuring, I think big numbers attract a lot of attention. And, and right now, the biggest number is the bandwidth number. You know, so video just inherently takes more bandwidth because it's, it's a larger format uh, of data. So if you can say, and I was at the, the event the other day where they said 80% of the data traffic will be for mobile video in five years' time. Well, that's a huge number, and it, it makes for a nice headline, but is it really what we should be measuring? And I'm not, I'm not sure what the right number should be. Helen, your opinion? Um, I don't know that I have much of an opinion on this. I, I can only comment on my own experience, that I've surprised myself 
in how much video I'd watch these days. And that often my first choice for watching that video is on a mobile device, either my mobile phone or my, my tablet. I wonder if, is that a choice? Your first, it's interesting that you said choice, my first choice to watch the video. I wonder because if it's, I'm lying in bed. Is it, exactly, is it? Because that's what's there. <laughs> Have you got a TV in the bedroom? Yes. So do you ever show... No, it's, no? An, it's an old TV. I'd need to get a new TV and I right. can't be bothered. Would you? Um, one day, when I'm ready... Because I do that a lot. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I think actually the really fascinating point there that we've got all the big screens around the home uh, and yet we actively choose to watch on the small screen even when it's just a few feet away from us. And logically that doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm. Um, but mobile, it's not, that happens not just with video, it happens with, you know, when you're browsing the web or doing social media. And it's this thing that actually a lot of mobile activity isn't mobile at all. It's when you're in the home or in the office and actually only about 20% of in-app time or mobile usage time is when you're out and about. And I think that's always an important reminder when we come to somewhere like uh, MWC, when everyone's talking about mobile as if it's, a, it's not actually just, it's in home as, as much as it's out of home. But it's interesting, I'm sorry, um, Rafe, it's really interesting that I just realized that video is so personal. Like, I don't want somebody next to me watching it, so that's why I don't put it on the TV. I just want to watch it. It's, it involves only me, and maybe I don't want him to judge me or he or she. So I just realized that it's I do it on the small screen because it's individual. That really depends on the video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, many times do I start watching something and then say, actually, you should watch this. And I put it up on a, on a TV. Started, it, was, yep. it was something you wanted to watch. Yeah. And it's not something like, it's not a family movie, you know, where we all sit around, what are we going to watch tonight? But it, suddenly I realised, you know, everything's changed on that level. It, it's the fact that you find it through your social media channels. So you found something, you start watching it, and then you think, actually, someone else would like that. Instead of sharing it, you're sharing it in person. Wow, what a... Great idea, actually sharing a video in person with someone by watching it on a big screen. But, but you're right, Vicky, our social habits have changed dramatically over the last few decades in terms of screen-based activity, um, cinema screens to TV screens um, to, to mobile devices. And we don't have as many of those shared TV experiences uh, anymore. Um, you know, families, each member of the family has got their own device, so they're looking um, at their own video in their own time and they've got their headphones on. At the same time, there are things like the Amazon Fire Stick, which I use when I'm at my mum's house, and we can watch content together. So it's things that, that I've saved, movies that I've saved on my Amazon Prime or whatever that I know she'll like. There are videos on YouTube, uh, that video clips, history stuff that I think she'll like so that we can watch those together on the, the big screen. And the major advantage of that is I can get subtitles and that I can increase the size of the subtitles so mum can actually access the content. And that's the one thing I have pretty good eyesight. It's not as good as it was, but it's good enough. I've got pretty good hearing so I can hear my mobile device but there are lots of people out there who can't access this stuff because the screen resolution isn't right the lighting's not right you can't get the subtitles all those kinds of things um, it's interesting what you, you just said about um, uh, watching uh, having a uh, making an event out of a video piece of video and watching it together with someone and on a big screen and we did that in the cinema when it started um, has everything changed so much so that we now we watch the same things but just do that in at different times and in different places and then come together to discuss it and discuss being a big word really but chat about it and so you talk about things on twitter 
about things that you've watched. You may not have watched it at exactly the same time as other people, but everyone still sees the same things. I think there are definitely communities of interest around um, series and box sets and the whole binge watching of you know different box sets, which is something I have deliberately not gone down that I haven't gone down that road because I just don't have the time because I will be up all night watching a small screen. You've not watched The Wire. No. Oh come on. No. Or The West Wing. No. You need to watch The West no, Wing. No. You will love it. I know. That's the problem. <laughs> that's why I haven't turned it on. <laughs> okay. Okay. Oh, let's get Paul a little bit back. <laughs> They're going to start all the movies. There's people that don't do that. Watch The West Wing. <laughs> it's about technology, not content recommendations. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're talking about... Oh, now that's interesting. That's really geeky. Okay, so on the technology bit, I was, something I wanted to say was, um, right now, throwing video doesn't pass the toaster test. The toaster test means it's toaster simple. It's one button. I press it, and it works. And so what I want is I want to have a situation where my throwing of my video from my phone onto the big screen is one button. And when it passes the toaster test, I think more people will do it. Do you know what I'd want? Sorry. I just realized by sharing, one of my problems on Facebook that I mentioned before is I watch a video and I think it's amazing. And I share it with my team and colleagues. And they've already seen it. I'd really want to know. No, honestly. <laughs> that would save us a lot of time. Because I do that quite often. I'm amazed about things and I keep on and I'm thinking, I, don't, I haven't done it to you, Helen, but I do it to a lot of people. And I go, why did I waste their time and my time? That's one thing I'd love in there. An indication, don't send it to him. He's seen it already. Don't send it through Messenger, for example. That's just you know, what I'd want. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that, that's AI all over, isn't it? Has someone seen it? Are they going to like it? Is it relevant for them? Yeah. Yes or no? Then you know whether to send it or not. Yeah, yeah, because we lose our time. Well, it wouldn't even be a question of you sending it. Facebook will have decided whether to bother sharing your post with your friends on the basis yeah, that they've probably seen that already. It's just attention data. Yeah, it's getting even scarier. <laughs> so, Troy, let's get back to you right now. So, um, you, know, you do a lot of things. I know you do st things with advising startups in the UK. So, a little bit what's going on over there. We asked here the Bacino guys about Spain and the Barcelonian um, ecosystem. Can you talk a little bit about the UK ecosystem? We know London is big, but yeah, so London is really is short, yeah, quickly. Short and to the point. So I work with the Innovation Warehouse, um, and I'm one of the entrepreneurs in residence and one of the advisors for the Innovation Warehouse. And so every Wednesday, I get to see between four and six startups that come and pitch. And they do five minutes of pitching, five minutes of Q&A, and five minutes of one-way feedback. And it's really interesting for the startups to hear the feedback from the investors in the room that normally they never get to hear. So that, that works really well for them and moves them along. Um, I'm advising between eight and ten startups at any given point in time. The majority of the work I do is what I call value proposition work. How do you tell a story that's compelling and easy to understand, depending on the audience of customers, investors, or internal teams? Um, the UK is, you know, we read just last week, uh, approaching the first kind of unicorn coming out of the Silicon Roundabout. So that's quite interesting. VCs, we're starting to see VC money coming over from the US. So we're seeing some of the US mentality come over. I think in the UK and across the whole of Europe, there's a conservatism that isn't the same as in the US, and access to VC money is, is harder to come by. Um, so we're selling more angels. So we would say there are stages of funding. The three Fs, friends, family, and fools, covers your first 50000 
and then you get an angel that'll bring down kind of 150,000. And then there's this huge gap between 150,000 and about a million when the VCs will start picking up and going. And so we're looking for more sources and how do you bridge that particular gap. But really, really amazing, smart people doing really, really good things in a good regulatory environment. So lots of incentives from the government to, to make things grow. Um, can I ask a couple of questions? I, I, I think that's, that's really interesting. Um, I like the idea of the 50, 150, and a million. Um, how long does, what's the time sort of differential between a 50 and 150 and a million? How long does that last for? What do people do with that money? So your, your founders, when they're working on the, the 3Fs, can run for six months to a year because they're running on no salary, running on fumes, and or running on their own full-time job, and they're doing this kind of nights and weekends. Once they get the 150, in order to get the 150, they've got to quit their job. So they've got to go full-time and do this. Uh, and then it's kind of six months to a year. And during that time, they're building what they call the MVP, the, the minimum product that proves that there's enough need in the market and proves that they can actually deliver the first bit. Then that bridge from 150 to a million should be a 12-month run, during which time they get into the market and they get their early traction. Because without traction, the VCs are never going to come in. Mm -hmm. And those are the timings that, that I kind of use. So the so the 50K is like three months, then you've got 150 is like another six to nine months, and then uh, the mill's another 12 to 18 months. Ish, ish, ish but there's the first one, the first 50 can be three months yeah. if you're really fast, or it could be a year because you're trying to get to the point that you've got enough to get the 150 mm -hmm. and you can quit your job. So what kind of startups do you hear? You know, is it B2C, B2B? The majority of them are e-commerce related, mainly B2C. You know, some, some B2B stuff that I work with. Uh, I'd say London's also becoming a bit of a hub for fintech startups. Mm -hmm. um, and London, I think, benefits from the fact there's a lot of other technology companies having their offices there. So it's an accelerative effect. And so you're seeing, I think, more startups being looking to be acquired actually quite early on compared to the Silicon Valley where the kind of idea of the bigger buyout later on is, is more prominent. Yeah, but the, uh, the, the big word in the VC community this year is rabbits. So no longer talking about unicorns, we're talking about rabbits, which are real, actual businesses building interesting tech. Uh -huh. And so I think that's a really interesting thing. Those are the companies that are, are looking to be acquired early, as opposed to building billions of users before they sell out. Not just high growth, then. Not, just, not, not exclusively high growth. Not exclusively high growth. But I'm sure there will be some rabbit unicorns as well. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the other question I, 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 was, I wanted to ask was, is, do the VCs ever get one-way feedback? <laughs> so that's, that's a really good question. It sounded really great. And I, I, like, I like the idea of, a, of, of you giving one-way feedback and they're not really allowed to respond and because they just need to listen. They just need to listen. Um, when do when do the VCs get the one way feedback? If you just need to listen, <laughs> yeah, so that that doesn't happen as much. But when I, pero pero, but but I coach my startups to screen the VCs every bit as much as the VCs are screening the startups because. The number of times startups get invited to come and pitch and spend days or weeks or months pitching to VCs and, and angels that will never actually give them any money is, is absolutely ludicrous. So I say, you need to ask a series of five different questions about when was the last time you invested, at what stage, what's the level of investment that you've done, what's a typical exit, and those kind of questions. So this, the feedback actually happens at the beginning of the process. 
And if they can't answer any of those questions right, they're getting feedback that says, well, you're not a qualified VC, so I'm not going to waste my time. And so um, why is past performance a guide to their future investment? Um, it's not necessarily a direct relationship, but also it establishes more of a power base so that the VC doesn't come in thinking, I've got all the power. They say, wait a minute, I'm a startup, and I've got a really, really good business, and, and I'm only going to partner with the right VC. Okay, so move on to the next question, which has to do with data and security. Um, we had a few breaches this year, 2015, sorry. So um, there's now a new regulation from the EU. It's a little bit of a mix-up what exactly has to be done there. So, Troy, um, your opinion on that? <laughs> Who does what and why and... So Why we need it, first of all. So the EU has a new new set of regulations coming called the General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR. It will not come into force until 2018. Uh, the language was finalized just at the end of last year. In January, they came up with the final language. And when it comes to advertising, and specifically around mobile, because that's the context in which we're looking at this, there's one particular phrase that you need to achieve unambiguous consent from the consumer in order to build a profile on them. Now, four years ago, there was all about the cookie law, and everybody thought the law was about cookies. The law was never about cookies. Cookies were simply the marker that allowed you to build the profile on the consumer. And we got a whole raft of new pop-ups that came around. The regulation is different in so much as it covers all European countries with the exact same language, whereas the European Privacy Directive allowed each individual country to implement the law in their own way. And so the UK was much more commerce-centric and went for a light touch and allowed for implied consent, mm -hmm. whereas places like in Amsterdam and places like here in Spain, it was much more aggressive. You needed to have explicit consent. And so there was a, not a universal way to actually have it applied. So the GDPR will simplify things because it will be consistent regulation across the board. To have unambiguous consent means you have to actively tick a box. You can't just kind of ignore it and have it go away. So the implied consent will no longer be available. That doesn't mean we're going to get more pop-ups asking for cookie consent, but it means they're going to ask us to actually engage with them before they go away. The more interesting question for me when it comes to advertising is the main publisher is the one asking for the permission, but they're asking it on their behalf and behalf of all of their quote-unquote trusted partners that sit behind them. So that's the seven social media networks. That's all of their tracking and all of their analytics for website performance and all of their ad networks that may be placing new cookies or placing actually new profiles or building new profiles. If any of them have a violation, the person who collected the consent is the one who's going to be liable. And they're talking up to 2% of gross revenue, so that's a significant chunk of, of revenue to be um, aligned with. So there'll be lots of kind of back-to-back -back solicitor agreements saying, if you, one of my partners screws up, then it's going to be, it's going to be serious. That's interesting. Up to 2% of gross revenue. gross revenue of publishers who don't make any money. Okay. Right. So 2% uh, of gross revenue of whatever the individual or the company is that collected the consent. And if they don't have any revenue, then, then they won't have any revenue. So, and, and that's really interesting because that means the people who are laying the cookies aren't actually liable. They're liable for their own content, but... But I think he's saying the financial impact of 2% of zero is still yeah. zero, and as yeah. a result, the risk, the risk is mitigated. Is that your point? It is, but also, if network number three puts a cookie on my machine, and I'm looking at uh, publisher A, 
you're telling me that if there's a breach in some way, publisher A gets hit with a fine, not the network that is the one that had the breach. And the network's making money and the publisher's not making money. So actually there's no liability on the network that's laying the cookie. There is a liability on the publisher. Okay, now I understand the, the, the point that you're trying to make. And you're right because three is the one, and I'm going to say it's yeah. not laying the cookie, but building the profile on the consumer. And they're actually using the consent from the publisher in order to do that. And so their liability wouldn't be. But I think that I'd have to look at what the regulation yeah. actually says. Does it pass through to 2% of the actual violator or only 2% of the person who collected the consent? And I'm not a, I'm not a solicitor. I'm not a lawyer, so I'm, I'm not able to speak specifically. And I think the interesting thing about this is actually just going to make the agreements between ad tech and the publishers even more complex. And there will be whoever will be liable. It will be difficult to work it out. Looking at it from a consumer point of view, I mean, the idea of this is to increase transparency and safety for the consumer. I'm not sure it actually will, because I think most people are just going to go, yeah, tick on it just as they do with the cookie boxes at the moment. Um, on mobile, it's more interesting because it potentially could become part of an onboarding process uh, for apps, so maybe it weighs more heavily in, in favour of them versus web. I think that's probably reading too much into it. Um, and so it, it feels like it's going to be quite heavy regulation, um, and I think the impact is actually just to make the, the, sort of the back channel contracts more complex, which I'm not sure is necessarily a good thing. The, the other thing, the, the news and the media have been talking to the general public about how people are selling your data, selling your data, selling your data. And I, I always find that to be a, a misnomer because at the end of the day, the data is the biggest asset these companies have, and they're never going to sell the data. What they're doing is they're using the data to filter your attention. So they're using the data to decide which ads are shown to you using the data, but they're certainly not selling it from one party to another party, at least in 95 or more percent of the cases. Yeah, I mean, it becomes about the segmentation. Actually, that's the reason that a lot of people don't like advertising on Facebook, because all the data stays within Facebook. It's their first-party data, and it's sort of very valuable for them. Um, and I think that's a really interesting point to raise, because people get very uncomfortable with the idea of their data being sold, but actually it's not. It's kind of their, their profile or their interest, which things are then sold against. But the interesting thing is, actually, when it comes down to you ask most people, they can actually, I'm okay with that data being sold because it's an implied contract. They, they see it as getting something for free. And actually, most of the kind of big web services, and the same applies to mobile, is people have been willing to sacrifice a certain amount of privacy because it gets some stuff for free. I think we do like our stuff for free. And we are so far down the road of having handed our data over to third parties, that it's very difficult to claw this back in any shape, way or form. But with the rise of artificial intelligence and going back to some of the conversations we had at the beginning, I think there are much wider implications now about this data. We've kind of unleashed a Pandora's box of it. Uh, and it's only going to increase, perhaps. Uh, and the decisions that are made based on the data that's captured um, they're kind of flawed and and I worry that the decision-making processes that's based on this data and and the things that come out of it won't make our lives easier or better or faster or I blame Bill Thompson <laughs> that's an in-joke for Brits who listen to the BBC yeah, <laughs> I, I, I actually am more sympathetic with what Helen says personally but just to try and think about it the the other way round is that, yes, it's absolutely a concern, but all of that data 
has been available in a lot of forms before, and it's not a, a new issue. The thing is, technology has had an accelerative effect on it. And actually, for me, the concern is where does the tipping point come and where it's bad because it's happening too quickly and we can't control it, rather than it's actually happening. Because I think the promise that it delivers is actually fantastic, and it can mm. do lots of good things. But, you know, there's a, it's a slippery slope. And once you start going down it, you can't stop halfway. And we need to make the decisions before we get there. And that's the thing that can tell. Honestly, I don't see how it's going to happen. Because I think all the momentum, whether it's the capitalism that Troy was talking about earlier, the fact that people like stuff for free, or the fact that technology moves so quickly. Um, and that, that's the debate we have to have now. And, yeah, it, it, it does scare me. Um, and particularly depending on whichever market you're in, what level of control you have it's, it's scary stuff so there's a misconception i find a lot of times on what kind of data is transferred and when you talk to people who don't know about technology it's like my data is being given away and when, sometimes when you say it's anonymous especially in e-health and that can create new drugs and uh, help get a better help a health for all of us and so i need your mobile data coming out from any fitness app you're using or something and they don't understand what is being shared with others. So, so that's actually my, my personal view, is um, identifiable data is the thing I'm concerned about. Aggregated anonymous data, I think, would be a very good thing, because actually, and, but even that can be dangerous, because what Helen was talking about with advertising, it will only be good as the data that's being collected and the audience that you're collecting it from. And there is a danger that there will be a digital divide between the kind of those who are connected and giving their data and those who are not. And we already see that between the generations and that's only going to become more profound as even more data flows into the system. Yeah, so what you and I were talking about earlier, which is data and consumer privacy boils down to a few additional things. It's not just privacy, it's also trust, and it's control. And the last part is value. So e-health data, I want as much of my e-health data to go to my doctor as possible because they're going to make my life better. I'm not so sure that I wanted to go to my American insurance company because they might actually charge me more or use that data against me. And so do I, do I trust the value? Do I trust the individual? Do I trust the organization? And do I feel like I have control over those particular points? Um, so I was re-listening to, and I, the name has just escaped me already, but the, the reporter who did The Guardian on Edward Snowden. And he talks, he talks about how he gives somebody his email address and says, please email me all of your passwords for all of your email accounts and, and everything else just so I can have access to it. Because obviously, since you've done nothing wrong, then you have no problem sharing that. And nobody ever emails him. And he says, well, that doesn't mean that only terrorists you know, should worry about privacy. It means that everybody should worry about privacy. And I said, that's a one-dimensional and kind of a flawed argument. Because I don't know you. I don't trust you and you're giving me no value in return, and as a result, of course, I'm not going to give you all of that information. But if you, if you give me trust, if you give me control, and you give me value, I will. So I, I think that trust and control one's really interesting, and you think about it from the governmental point of view. Estonia has long been a leader in e-government, and you can see exactly who's accessing what, and even to a certain extent, allow for permissions. And that's the thing that I think we have to move towards. But it's easy for things like health data and a certain amount of government data because there's very well understood trust relationships. I think the problem with uh, media and when we get into a company like Facebook and Google, 
there's less of an understanding of what's acceptable and actually there's a lot of cultural variations as well True. Um, and you know it's not going to be possible to have a single dashboard through which this all goes and actually most people don't want to make that decision on their own that probably you know, then becomes about can you who do you trust to advise you about who I should trust and, and actually it's a really interesting one because in the digital domain you know do you trust your government more than you trust Google or Apple Actually, I'm not sure I trust any of them that no, much. No, no, I, I think I'm with you on that one, Rafe. I, it's a really interesting discussion about all this data flying around and the potential for greater targeting, getting additional value in the content that we receive because it's more targeted and more tailored. Except that word greed comes into my mind and the advertisers and or publishers or the ad networks or all of them together are complicit in um, screwing the system over and instead of actually using decent targeting to reach their audience it, they just go for reach and so it's just you know male age 18 to 90 uh, and they'll get a football ad and it's it just kind of it's like why are you doing this to us and, and how do we counteract that so uh, i i recently moved house and live a lot closer to work which means i don't ever take the tube anymore um, I have no idea what films are on at the cinema at all. I have no idea if any of them are any good. And somebody also once said to me that if a film has to advertise, then it's, an, it's not a very good film anyway. But that's besides the point. Um, I have no idea what films are on. So I don't know which ones that I might be interested in because I don't ever see any cinema advertising anymore. The majority of the places they advertise is on, on the tube on a big, in a big poster. Have you heard of this thing called a newspaper? <laughs> No. <laughs> okay. So you, you're going to do to me. <laughs> okay. Um, since we're going to wrap it up, we're here at MWC. Um, okay. So, you, still okay. Okay. So um, we'll do ad blocking, and then I just want you to all go through and tell me why at MWC. What are you hoping to see? What's the future? And uh, so when I walk down the tube. I actually have my blinkers on, obviously, so that I don't see those ads on the side of the on the on the side of the tunnels. Is that ad blocking? <laughs> um, and to to tie in the privacy thing, ad blocking blocks more than ads. Ad blocking blocks those trackers that are used to build the profiles to collect the data. So it, it's a combination of things. It's not just blocking <laughs> the ads themselves. Um, and I think it's it's part of. Uh, a shift of power from the advertiser and the publisher to the consumer. The consumer has more power than they've ever had in tools and in upcoming regulation. And when and how they use that re remains to be seen. Um, and uh, we were talking about the fact that the network operator 3 has just announced they're doing a partnership with Shine, uh, which is a, a really sharp bunch of guys from, from Israel who have come up with a new solution for network level ad blocking. Um, and we'll, we'll see how this gets rolled out and how it gets deployed. Uh, but it could have a significant impact in, the, in mobile use and mobile data when it comes to advertising and, and to tracking. So will this change um, what advertisers will do? Yeah, I think um, ad blocking in that sense will just encourage them to move towards native advertising and things that are, can't be blocked. I mean, there is the lean principles that the IAB um, promote in terms of not being intrusive encryption that's that's all helpful for me ad blocking is actually a result of the fact that ad tech industry has gone a bit wrong and there's this big black box of technology that no one understands and there's i mean you look at even a simplified diagram of dmps and everything else that sits in there and you can there's no way you can understand, and you can actually have an advertiser bidding against itself which is absolutely nuts 
Um, and so ad blocking then becomes simplified down into a kind of a pro-consumer or pro-advertising issue. And I think that's oversimplification. And so it's easy to, the, the operators want to think the champion of the consumers, actually they just want information about how much advertising is going across their network. Because that's kind of the table stakes for the upcoming negotiations, which there is going to be around advertising. It, it, it has to be. Um, but equally well, you know, saying that you're pro-publisher and therefore uh, is a, a statement in itself that's uh, very much around your perception of what you can get for free in those implicit contracts. And so you know, I think the shine thing is absolutely fascinating because I think that's putting a bit more power in the back of operators. Am I, you know, from a personal level, I kind of wish operators would just be a smart pipe in the background that I didn't have to worry about too much. But, you know, they've invested millions, so they do have a right to be part of this discussion. But what I don't want anyone doing is taking unilateral action, which it does seem, I think, that will be the thing that happens in, in 2016 that will upset people. Yeah, the, the interesting thing from the whole advertiser perspective is the advertisers have got all the money and they're going absolutely nuts over ad blocking. But in reality, the consumer has a relationship with the publisher. That's, that's the first party relationship. And so as much as the advertisers want to say, mea culpa, mea culpa, it's all our fault. You know, we, we, we got too aggressive and our technology is too invasive and all those other things. It's the publisher who violated the trust between the consumer and them and this value exchange that was kind of, okay, I get my content and in return, I'll give you some of my attention filtered by some data. But then there wasn't enough revenue, so publishers let more and more ad tech in. But the publishers have a role in this. I think publishers were stuck between a rock and a hard place. They they need the uh, customers to be you know reading the articles and accessing the content, and they desperately need the money uh, from the advertisers, especially old media, you know, newspapers that have gone online and magazines that have, um, print magazines that, that have gone online. Uh, and, you know, some of those newspapers are declining pretty fast with the independent going online only as an announcement recently. I, you know, things are changing fast. Um, and I worry that publishers are so anti-ad block and they're so paranoid that they're unable to have an intelligent and open conversation with all parties with, who have a vested interest to come up with new ways of doing things and new business models and new approaches to the post-ad block world. I think that's a, that's a really interesting point. And I think that the biggest um, problem I foresee happening is that we just navigate around the actual problem, bad advertising and bad data collection. And we simply... We simply ad tech, innovate in the ad tech world out of the problem and all adverts become properly native, like we were mentioning earlier, and you will not be able to tell the difference between content from a publisher and advert from, a, from an advertiser because that's the way you'll get the advert through the ad blockers. Yes, and there's about 2% of the actual brands and advertising agencies that will do native advertising at that quality level. There's the whole 98% that are the low end, that are low quality content, low quality publishers, low quality kind of banner ads, spray and pray. And I'm not sure that they're ever going to be members of the IAB. They're never going to adopt lean. They're never going to go native because they don't have the budget or, or, or can make the investment. And so that means you're consolidation of publishers, consolidation of advertisers. And it does make me wonder whether the industry is going to split down the middle actually between that kind of we want to call it labor all the remnant stuff that is low quality, not very interesting, and the higher quality stuff. And I would hope that higher quality will win because transparency will come to the fore and it will be about quality, which is frankly what it should be. Yeah, I'd be thrilled to but, um, not have that human low stuff. doesn't leave me that optimistic. <laughs> but I do miss my cinema film advertising. 
And I don't know where I would get that from if all adverts are blocked. Okay. And even the cheap adverts are blocked, or the most expensive adverts are blocked. And and I, I I worry that I will not know who to trust, and whether it's content or whether it's an advert, and whether it's a, an advert that I want to see or not want to see. So you know, summarise that actually blocking is trying to solve the wrong problem. It's trying to solve the shut the gate after it's bolted. We should actually go back to you know why people even feel it's necessary in the first place. Exactly, and it's the obvious thing. But yeah, that's what the discussion needs to be in 2016, not. You know what would be a cold war and arms race with one side and the other. You need to solve the original problem. Actually, it's interesting. I put an ad blocker on my Chrome browser, not because I was I was annoyed with the advertisements on websites, but I did it because of YouTube. It, I got really frustrated watching a video. I have a whole you know series of videos on there, and then it's every time this advertisement and in Greece it was the same company. Again and again. Okay, I watched it once, I watched it twice, I watched it three times. I can't do that. Who was it? <laughs> Our biggest telco in Greece. Did it work? No. Does it mean I'm not you... in that company. But you, you... I'm not on that company. I don't use them. You know the, you know the telco. Would you I know buy... the telco, yeah. Would you buy the... Would you no, buy no, it a... wasn't convincing, no. I it wasn't convincing. convincing? No, no. So it's still a bad advert? It was just frustrating at the end. I can't hear the music anymore. It's just a bad advert? Yep. It so, was repetitive. That was a problem. It kept on repeating all the time. Even if it was a good song, for example, because I just listened, even if it was a good song, it, it got wasted. Why was it repeated so often? So that was an issue for me. So that's, so that's YouTube, right? Yeah, that's yeah, YouTube's that, that's problem. why I added ad blocker, because I got frustrated with that. I'm just talking about something really simple. Like another thing that I've noticed, Forbes, um, I, read, I read them. They used to allow you to read five articles for free within a month. That was great. I was fine with that. And then they said, I've got an ad blocker. If I don't get rid of it, they're not going to show me the content. And I said, no, I'm not getting rid of it. Honestly, I don't. Yeah, but I, so I have a problem with that. Yeah. Tell me. Because you're fundamentally not allowing them to make money. I know, but the way they're it's, doing it, I, I agree with Helen, they should find another way. But then don't look at their content. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then ju- you need to just not look at their content. I do. Yeah. I I, th- I think um Illy's right. Um in that case I get the point why Forbes has done that. You can switch off your ad blocker. It's really easy to just switch it off for that page or for an hour or for a day or whatever, you know. It it's not difficult to do. It's it's fairly trivial if you really really want to access a, a piece of content. And I think it's fair enough that there is advertising there has to be some value exchange. Mm-hmm. There is a cost to putting out content. There is a cost for journalists. There's a cost for the technology, for the editing, sub-editing, whatever else it may be. And if you're not going to pay your five cents or whatever, or if there's no mechanism to pay to read that article for five cents ad-free, then that's the price you pay is to switch off your ad blocker for half an hour. Yeah. Is that such a big deal? Okay, big conversation. I've, uh, whatever. So, uh, because we're going to wrap this up now, <laughs> I want you to tell me what you see hot coming out in um, at MWC. And Rafe, I'll start with you. Okay, so so after what feels like um, quite a depressing podcast about all the things that are going wrong, actually, I just want to come out of MWC with a, a sense of hope and optimism. And the thing I like most about MWC is those undiscovered bits of 
Uh, and it's a serendipity that you come across in Hall 8 and you discover something interesting that you just didn't think about before. For me, last year, it was a company called Sigvox, which kind of provides um, connectivity for IoT at a grand scale, very low cost. But like anyone else, I like seeing the new toys. And I think this year, the stuff around VR is probably going to be really interesting. It's going to be the big deal. I think actually in practice, it might not pay off as the promise um, so actually just coming away still with a sense of wonder about mobile and it happens to me every year when I come to Barcelona I come away enthused about the industry and about mobile just because there is so much exciting going on um, but that's also probably why it's so dangerous as we've been discussing yeah it really is one of the very few conferences um, or congresses if that's the right word to use um, where you can buy um, a, a complete infrastructure to start your own telco from a mast in a box or in a suitcase, all the way through to content for your site, um, and whether that content is financial data or porn, whatever you want. So you go from the whole end, from one end of the spectrum to the other. The complete ecosystem is here. That's really interesting because you, you can start putting the, um, the, the the pieces of the jigsaw together to determine actually what you should be doing in this space. And everyone is here that means anything in the mobile industry. That's why it's really interesting, really exciting. Um, I can't believe you didn't mention VR. VR is going to be massive this year. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't listen, did I? It's true of my life. <laughs> so I'm very involved in the, the GDPR, the privacy regulations and ad blocking, and very interested to see what operators are going to be doing around that particular space. Um, I'm also involved in a, another initiative uh, helping consumers find financing for 3G and 4G smartphones. So the emerging market space is going to be huge as they roll out 3G and 4G. I mean, I think it was last week I heard the $7 smartphone. Last year it was the $40 smartphone. Mm -hmm. So finding access to people and having that come out. I'm looking to see what's going to happen with Google Loon and Internet.org and the general kind of social inclusion that comes with broad internet access and access to these 3G and 4G smartphones should be very interesting. Um, I'm actually also feeling um, pretty optimistic about this year's Mobile World Congress. Uh, it's really great to see so many people in town. There's always new things to see, new conversations to have, new people to meet. Uh, my thing um, of late has been artificial intelligence and how it's the kind of the underlying theme and structure for so many things that are happening in the future. So I'm really interested to see how and if that's being adopted uh, and what kind of conversations are happening around that artificial intelligence, whether it relates to advertising or e-health or devices or, you know, Internet of Things, whatever it might be. Uh, and the sun's out and the weather forecast is good and the carver is good and the tapas is good. So it's going to be a good week. Um, Helen, tell me about Swedish beers. Who's coming and what are we going to see there on Wednesday? So on Wednesday night, we'll be back at our favourite haunt of Dostress from 7 o'clock until late. Uh, we've got several sponsors this year. So my headline sponsor uh, is Volume DSP. So Gavin Stewart is the managing director there. And he'll be there with his team talking about analytics and advertising and how they can support both um, advertisers and publishers in what they're doing. 
I'm very excited that we've also got Nextbit uh, as part of the sponsorship crew with their Robin phone, uh, which I think will be great. We've got some shenanigans from VU, so they're an SMS provider, uh, but they've also got some goodies for us and there'll be a promo going out about that shortly. So if you sign up at swedishbeers.org, you'll get the link to, to see what they have uh, on offer. And we've got the Inspiring Interns and Inspiring Search crew, a few other surprises up our sleeves. It'll be a good night. Yeah, worst kept secret of MWC is everyone really comes just to go to Swedish beers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it was really nice having you all here with us. Um, Troy, Illigo, Rafe and Helen. Um, so bye from us from Barcelona. See you from Monday. Hopefully the strike will be over. We'll be getting there at the venue, but we'll find ways. Either walk or somehow we'll get there. Goodbye. You're listening to Tech Talk Central. <laughs>